0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You know, we're writing about all these reasons to express yourself creatively. and um, And, you know, and we finished the book and I thought, God damn! Why am I not doing it? So <laughs> that was the start, you know. And I, um, I started not taking on freelance work, and I started just saying no to a lot of things, actually, in order to give myself the psychic and chronological time to write uh, poetry. And I started taking workshops um, and classes, and submitting, and you know, just taking myself seriously, and um, it snowballed because once you do that, it's a self-fulfilling positive prophecy.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Robin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative.
1: Thank you. It's really great to be here after um, our collaborations of the past. This is the first time I've been on your podcast.
0: Yeah, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, You know, it's funny I have referenced your work that you did with me so many times, and uh, I realized people get offended when I give them feedback. I was like, you don't understand. I learned to give feedback from a woman who doesn't sugarcoat shit. She has like no capability of sugarcoating, and you know, I realized was like, well, most people aren't thick-skinned enough to take that. But we'll we'll get into. All of that. You have a new book out, uh, which we will talk about. But uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped your life and who you've become and what you've done with it?
1: Oh my goodness. That's a great question. Um, I was thinking a lot about them uh, in anticipation of this conversation. In fact, um, they were both incredibly creative for one thing. So I was raised in a house full of creative activity and uh, we were all encouraged to be creative in, in pretty uh, non-traditional ways, too. Um, my parents were sort of beatniks or bohemians in Greenwich Village uh, when I was born. And um, they, my father was a, an artist, a painter. My mother was a wannabe poet, actually, um, but she had six children instead, never quite got her poetry Career off the ground, but um, you know they used to have parties where they would be stamping grapes to make wine, and uh, they were into jazz. They had a creativity group uh, called Fortnightly that met every other week um, with with a bunch of people who did various art forms, and so it was it was just sort of a beehive of creative activity that I was growing up in. And also, I, I think the most important thing an answer to your actual question, is they gave me a sense, both of them equally, that I could do anything I wanted to do, that there was nothing that was uh, unavailable to me if I wanted to pursue it. And so I never had kind of a fear of trying things, trying new things. Um, it, it was just built into my fiber that if i felt like you know hitchhiking around europe at 17 and 18 why not so i did that you know if i felt like um uh leaving my uh college career in berkeley to go live in a treehouse in hawaii uh i did that i and and that has sort of been the pattern of my whole life when you know i do things as long as they're satisfying and fun and when they stop being satisfying and fun um, or the learning curve flattens out, I, I do something else. And that's been yeah. my entire life.
0: Wow. So the one thing I wonder is, one, in a family of six, what did you learn about navigating human relationships? I mean, that's a big family. I mean, I always feel like with my family, because we're all Indian and loud as hell, you know, we're always fighting to be heard. But how does that work in a family <laughs> of six?
1: Well, I was lucky because I was the eldest. So it was a little easier for my voice to be heard. I have to admit, I, I feel badly for my youngest sister, who literally could not get a word in edgewise until uh, at least half of us had left home. <laughs> so I was I was lucky. And also, um, I, I somehow had a, a loud voice, even at a young age, in terms of not, you know, not actually loud, but in terms of making my self heard and my opinions um, expressed, and they were respected. So um, I kind of was an outlier among the six kids. Um, I I was treated differently by my parents. I was sort of treated like uh, more of an equal of theirs, and um, more of a kind of parental figure to my five. Uh, younger brothers and sisters, even though we were very close in age, there was only 18 months between all six of us. But um there was that difference. And I, you know, ultimately, what I discovered, the reason for that, I really believe is that it turned out that I didn't have the same father as my younger siblings. Um I only learned this a couple of years ago through one of those DNA tests. Um but I was different from a young age, and no one could figure out why. And it was all very unspoken. Um, but I was short, and um, my siblings were all sort of Amazons. And I was very bookish and lo- loved to read and curl up, you know, um, on a rainy day. And they were all very, very sporty and athletic, um, I didn't look a lot like them. I looked a lot like my mother, but um, I didn't look a lot like my siblings or my father um so I think that that was part of it that that on some level, everyone, my parents and my siblings recognized that this this girl is different, <laughs> you know, and so I was sort of treated a little bit like an outsider in some ways um yeah. but in terms of relationships, you know, I certainly learned um, to collaborate. That's for sure. I mean, we would put on shows, you know, little plays together in the neighborhood. And and I would, um, I remember gathering all my siblings together and telling them um, we were going to start a pet cemetery. And, you know, I was in charge and I would give them little assignments, like, you know, find a a, a little dead bug or something. It was a little morbid, but Um, so, and then the other, the other really huge thing I got from my family of origin and having all those, um, siblings was a sense of humor. We did share an incredible sense of humor, uh, when I was growing up and as adults, um, we would, we would, I just remember laughing a lot. My father had a very dark sense of humor, a black sense of humor. He was also a doctor and he would come home with these, outrageous stories about patients and, um, and, and we would sort of be moaning and groaning, but also laughing. Um, and it was just great. It was, you know, we, we had a lot of fun, um, as a family. We, I remember dance parties and we had a monkey that ran around and it was kind of, um, it was a very boisterous, um, warm environment. And, um, I think I learned both to hold my own as an individual, but also navigate um, how to get along with all kinds of people um, in a, in a big setting. And, and like I said, collaborate, which as we talked about in audience of one collaboration um, and creativity just are, you know, kissing cousins. And I think that it's really great when you, have both together um and in some ways i mean you know, at, at the simplest creativity must be a collaboration um if you believe that there's no such thing as creativity without uh a response or an audience eventually you know that that creativity the whole point of it is to communicate with someone else um even though that's not the um the driving force while you're creating it's it's the end goal it's got to be or you're you know one hand clapping in a forest or whatever that that metaphor is (laughs) so Uh,
0: learning that your uh father that raised you wasn't your birth father at such a late stage in life what does that do for your sense of identity is it disruptive or i mean how does it change things
1: well, it was pretty dramatic, um, to find out at such a late stage in life. Um, I was 68 when I found out. Um, and I never had the slightest suspicion. Um, even anyway, so my first reaction was absolute euphoria because I had always, sus- I had always had an affinity for Judaism. And what I found out was that, um, my biological father was 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. So I'm 50% Ashkenazi Jewish. And I loved finding that out because I had, I had written poems about uh, the Holocaust in my 20s and 30s, and I had no idea why. Um, and I used to have dreams um, that were related, and I, I literally had like all my best friends were Jewish <laughs> and I loved being invited to Jewish holiday dinners, Passovers, Seders. And, um, and I, and I just couldn't figure out why. And so it was very con- affirming of um, an intuitive sense I had always had and of that sense of difference I had had a, as a child. It explained that sense of difference. So on that level, it was, it was uh, a real positive Um, on the other hand, uh, it was, it was very painful to find out that all my siblings who I'm very, very close to were only half siblings biologically. That was that when I first realized that it was, it was quite a shock. It was almost more of a, a loss than, um, finding out the father who raised me wasn't my actual father. Um, that has that has lessened and decreased as time goes on and I realize that I still have the same relationship with my siblings, um, just because we had a different father. But um in terms of the identity, the you know, what I what I have I mean, I've processed it now for a couple of years. Um, writing the book of poetry, Double Helix, is is how I processed it. And what happened was in writing those poems in real time from the time I first found out. Till about a year or two ago, I was writing about it. And um, what, I, what I came to was I hadn't really lost anything. I had, I had gained a sense of identity, um, but also an appreciation for the father who raised me um, being still equal as a father. Um, he still, you know, the gifts he gave me didn't just disappear, um the 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 way he raised me didn't go away um i i mean all three of them were dead by the time i found out my mother and both fathers so that was that was very very difficult i i was frustrated that i couldn't talk to any of them about it and find out if any of them knew if they didn't know what you know what was the story there it was it was a huge mystery and that was that was a difficult part for me too because I love narrative. I love, you know, finding out what happened to people. And here I was in the middle of my own story without really having um, the details or the the whole plot uh, accessible to me. Um, so that was, that was tough. And then um, the other thing though, was, I think if I had found this out at a, before I had my own identity as solidified as it was by 68, say, if I found out in my 20s, I think it would have been devastating to my sense of identity because I didn't know who I was yet when I was 20 something, you know, um, no. at, at this, you know, so it would have really shaken me to the core and I would have really questioned who the hell am I? But, you know, at this point, it, I know who I am. I, I'm very solid, about who I am. It was more quest. So it didn't really affect my identity in that sense. It was more, um, as I said, the confirmation of things I had just unconsciously intuitively known about myself. Um, it, it it affirmed where all that came from, you know, and it turned out it was it was really quite amazing. I got to meet my um, biological father's Two children who he raised and knew were his children, um, which was fantastic. And so I learned a lot about my biological father, um, which was—I mean, I was really lucky because many, many people are finding out this kind of thing these days um, because of all these um, consumer DNA tests. But many people never track down who the parent was. You know, they just have a um, a, a not expected parent result, but they can't figure out. Who their parent was. So I was really lucky. And anyway, they, when I first met them and after we had talked for a little bit, they basically said, Oh my God, dad would have loved you. Um, You're so much more similar to him than we are. You know, apparently, he (laughs) really, they actually said that one brother actually said he would have loved you more, which I felt bad about. But apparently, my biological father loved to write. He loved to travel. He loved fine food. He loved culture, museums, art, and and my two new siblings just aren't into any of that, you know. So um, it was kind of cool to find out some of the things about myself um, that clearly hadn't come from my father who raised me um, came from this guy I never met, you know, but whose DNA I had half of. Um, On the other hand, it was bittersweet because, God, would I love to have known him and been able to talk to him and, you know, and just um, be able to hug him and smell him and, you know, have that visceral sensory self of him, a sense of him. Um, I do have a photograph. I have a bunch of photographs of him, which, again, I I was really happy to have. um, And there was one. I have a cousin. Oh, this was the other crazy part. It turns out I have a first cousin who lived a mile away from me in my tiny little village of 5,000 people. And he's been there for years and years and we didn't know we were first cousins until I took the test. So that was incredible. And he had, and then there's another cousin just across the river from me in Nyack. So they, one of them had an actual photo of my mother and my biological father when they were engaged before I was born. And that, I i mean, I just burst into tears when they gave me that photo. Um, it's the only one anyone knows of, of the two of them together. And they're so young and they're so beautiful. And it, it's really special. I framed it and I have it in my living room and I look at it every single day.
0: they also follow you know sort of non-traditional career paths like you did, or are many of them conventional um, paths. Some
1: did, some didn't. Um that's a good question too. My one sister is definitely an artist. She's a glass blower and a potter, and um she
5: uh
1: three of them actually all live in Eugene, Oregon, and she's she she makes art the way most people breathe. She can't not make it. Um she was a graphic designer um career wise and she just retired actually from the University of oregon in the um as a graphic designer um, whoops sorry about that hang on um, whoops um, so she she definitely has uh, followed that path um one sister started to she went to Bennington as a fine arts major um and sadly just got it got squashed out of her. Um it was a very clickish school. And if you weren't um following the New York School of Painting in the 1970s, you were just ostracized. And um so she she left after two years and she she did filmmaking for a while, but in the end she wound up um having a pretty uh regular job raising a daughter and um being you know just uh not really pursuing her art um in too many um obvious ways she's a calligrapher um and she still does that um another sister is a musician and also an artist um she actually got a phd in arts um arts administration i think and taught uh um students at the university of oregon how to put together an art por- portfolio and um, that was kind of her field. She also has a farm and chickens and goats. And um, you know, she's she's a real Renaissance woman. She does a little bit of everything. Her whole life is one big creative act. Um yeah. and then my two brothers. Um, one of them uh studied to be an architect, but it was right around the um the the uh recession, and he just couldn't get that off the ground. So um he became an executive at a company. Um, and then another brother did, was a builder and built gorgeous houses in LA. So, um, and now he's retired. So I guess yes and no, (laughs) um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, so that's that.
0: So how in the world do you get from hitchhiking across Europe to grad school in journalism at Berkeley?
1: (laughs) Um, in a meandering kind of way, um, Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, in in those days, you know, today, so many young people have these plans and they know, like, by the time they're juniors in high school, what they're going to major in. And they, um, you know, I remember my kids, I really encouraged them to take a year off after high school before they went to college. And they didn't want to do it. And I couldn't understand because to me, it's it was. So life changing to do that. Um, so I, I, I just kept kind of uh, going where the wind blew in a way all through my um, teens and twenties. Um, so I hitchhiked around, then I came back and went to um, Columbia for a while. Then I dropped out of that and went back to France for a while, and then I came back and did a little more at Columbia, and then I decided. Uh, to go to summer school in Berkeley and stay with a dear friend of mine, mainly because I was trying to break up with a guy who um, we just, <laughs> now, I, seriously, that was the main reason. Um, we just didn't seem to be able to, to keep away from each other as long as we were in the same city. Um, oh, and also I had been mugged at knife point in Manhattan. So I kind of wanted a a break from Manhattan, so I went out to Berkeley um stayed with this old family friend um, in a little cottage in the flats of Berkeley and just fell in love with with the area um I also fell in love with a a, a guy uh, that didn't hurt but um and I was taking summer classes at Berkeley and i it it turned out I could transfer there um, and so I just stayed and you know for the first five years my Poor parents kept saying, So when are you coming back east? And finally, after five years, they realized I wasn't coming back east. I I was staying in Berkeley. So um, I went to Berkeley. And then once again, I dropped out to go to the treehouse in Hawaii. Um, and then we had a flash flood. So that didn't work out. So I came back and then I finished up my undergrad degree. And then I was in theater for a long time. Um, as a stage manager and sometimes an assistant director. Um, I worked at Berkeley Rep, Theater, at Theater, um, Berkeley Stage Company and the Blake Street Hawkeyes, um, which was a performance art group that Whoopi Goldberg joined uh, right after I left <laughs> before she went to LA and got famous. So, um, and I loved doing that. It was, it was creative, but it was always, you know, creative. It was, Supporting other people's creativity—that um, yeah. was sort of a theme. So it, as,
0: So I so I'm familiar with. We'll yeah, talk about that
1: exactly. So um, so at a certain point after I was in theater for a while, um, probably three, four, or five years, um, and I was also working at a bookstore and waitressing, and you know it was a typical twenty-somethings life in the seventies and early eighties in Berkeley. Um, it was a lot of fun. And I just didn't think in terms of a career path still. So, but at a certain point, um, two acquaintances of mine walked into the bookstore where I was working and one of them had just gotten a master's in journalism and one had just gotten a master's in English Lit. And so I grilled them about both of their programs because I started thinking maybe I did want to write. Um, It had been kind of a... um, I had written uh, from the time I was four or five years old, uh, little poems and stories, but it had kind of gone underground for a while. And it was starting to um, surface that that was really what I wanted to do. You know, I I knew I didn't want to be a stage manager the rest of my life. I was good at it, but it wasn't satisfying enough um, because I did have this streak of creativity that wasn't being um, expressed. So- In the end, I I decided journalism school would be more practical. And so I went, and it was fabulous. And I I never did daily newspaper journalism. I was always interested more in writing about the arts, um, which I did. And then I wound up graduating and writing for um, a magazine. And then I got into writing for books, um, you know, as a ghostwriter, editor-type person. Um, But again, it was always... And And during that time, I was also writing poetry, just for myself.
5: Uh-huh.
1: Um, eventually i uh I got into submitting poems to small literary journals, um, but at the same time, I was having children and raising them and um, doing day jobs you know to to help support the family um, and it was always except for the poems um working to, as I said, um, further someone else's creativity, which I enjoyed. And and again, I think I was good at it. Um, But um, at a certain point, my mom was dying and um, we all gathered to kind of say goodbye to her. And she, she liked to read palms. And so we indulged her and she read all of her six children's palms and all of her eight grandchildren's palms And she kind of had a, it was sort of a farewell message from her to each of us. It was very moving. And I'll never forget, we were on a deck at my sister's house in Eugene. um, And she she had, it was one-on-one, just the two of us. And she said, you need to find your own passion. Um, The window is closing and you need to do it. And I was really struck by that message. Um, And it would make a great story if I said, so the very next month, you know, I started, (laughs) I quit my job and I started writing. Um, It took a little longer to simmer. Um, And actually, um, the thing that finally galvanized or catalyzed me into really taking my poetry seriously um in a sustained way you know as opposed to you know i i do it like in a in a frenzy of of um activity for a while and then something would distract me and i would stop um you know like a mother dying for example and having to fly out there for 3 months but anyway um what really got me on the path that led me to be able to actually put together a whole book and get it published of my poetry was um, believe it or not working on an audience of one with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's well, it's funny. you say I'm that? because so that it,
1: I'm, I'm well, dead serious. Uh, cause you know, I, it's funny. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I remember talking to my sister and I remember telling her, I was like, yeah, so Robin doesn't want to work on another book with me because <laughs> she was inspired by the message of audience of one. And she's like, so, that means the book is working. I was like, yeah, but it worked on the wrong person.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: exactly. But really, you know, we're writing about all these reasons to express yourself creatively. And, um, and you know, and we finished the book and I thought, God damn, why am I not doing it? So that was <laughs> the start, you know, and I, um, I started not taking on freelance work and I started just saying no to a lot of things actually in order to give myself the psychic and chronological time to write uh, poetry. And I started taking workshops um, and classes and submitting and, you know, just taking myself seriously. And um, it snowballed because once you do that, it's a self-fulfilling positive prophecy. Um, and, And that was only in like, I mean we were working on the book mostly in 2016. Um oh and I have to say the other thing that happened that year was my sister, my youngest sister who's the most creative probably, um had breast cancer. And I was spending a lot of time with her. And I think that that seeing that sense of, you know, viscerally feeling that sense of mortality um also uh kicked me in the butt to you know like if if you if you don't do this now you're never going to do it so i had that sense of urgency um and and you know the more i wrote um the you know i did i i committed to a daily practice which as we say in the book is so important um i tried to uh cut down on any distractions um i start oh i uh, this was huge too um and we we mentioned it's a good idea in audience of one. So I thought, Oh yeah, good idea. Wish I had it. So I started a creativity support group in 2017 and it's still going. In fact, we have a meeting tonight and it's been phenomenally successful in terms of um, it's, it's all different genres of, of uh, creativity and we've been truly cheerleaders for each other. And so Every single one of us, there are seven of us, have um, achieved more in the last few years than we had in all the years before put together uh, in terms of our creative output, our creative successes. It's just been incredible. I, I really don't know if I would have uh, pursued this book if it hadn't been for um, that that group, which is called Moi, by the way, which stands for both the French me, because it's like art my turn. Uh, we're all mothers of children who've grown up. So it's um it's also stands for mothers of invention. And uh um you know it's like our turn to do our own creative work. Um and it's it and it works. So between that and then the discovery of my biological father and needing to process that through poetry, that's how the book really um was born, I'd say.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. You just kind of basically gave us a giant commercial for my book, even though we're supposed to be here talking about yours. Um, I want to go back to to a lot of the things you said earlier, because there's just so much to tear apart and, and dissect in uh, you know a lot of what you said, particularly about young people and career paths, because I I don't know if this was the case when you uh, were a grad student at Berkeley Journalism. Was it the same building that it is now, that building with the wood beams and it's that building that's on the north side of campus. Yes. I'm not sure if that's
1: that's very charming. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So funny story. Uh, that is the building that I took one class in my entire time. I was at Berkeley huh. and it was a writing. It was a class on war and literature huh. uh, we we read sort of catch 22 and a guy named Steve Eisenberg, who was a guest lecturer at Berkeley for that semester, taught it. And, um, you know, I think he had been the editor of some big newspaper in New York. And he left after that. But I remember walking into a career fair three weeks into Berkeley, which is ridiculous considering I was a freshman. And I talked to a guy at Anderson Consulting, which then became Accenture. And he said, we don't hire English majors. And I never set foot in that building again after that. <gasps> and I always think back to that and think, wow, what did I miss out on? Yeah, that's but I sad. think it makes a, well, well, that's the thing, right? To your point, I feel like a lot of young people make decisions about their entire lives when they've only lived a fraction of them. And this is something I saw because I did it myself. And even when I went back to talk to my high school AP English teachers class, I think this was right. When unmistakable came out, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. Um, all these kids were worried about what they were going to do with their lives. And I'm thinking to myself, even if you have this whole thing perfectly planned out, nothing's going to turn out like you thought it
1: would. Well, that's the joke. That's the irony. Um, You know, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's okay to have kind of a, um, a, a general sense of, I, I mean, I personally think thinking about one's values and how mm-hmm. to um, live a life in which you're able to live those values is more effective and constructive than than figuring out if you want to be a lawyer or a doctor. Um, now, I have to say that is, that is coming out of a, a position of Total privilege uh, wow. on my part, um, and I would be the last person to say that everyone has the luxury of thinking about their lives. <laughs> you know, seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds so obnoxious um, to say that to someone who's just um, struggling to uh, eat and have a home. But if you have the um, luxury of making certain choices, the way I did. Um, and don't get me wrong. I was self-supporting from the time I left home. Um, mm-hmm. I, I paid my own way in that hitchhiking trip in Europe and I paid for college and I paid for, you know, all my adventures. I It, it, it wasn't that, but, it, but I had been raised in a family of privilege and yeah. exposed to all those things. So um, anyway, but so here's a good example of that. Um, I had a book production company, as you know, called Lark Productions. And um for a variety of reasons, after it stopped being fun and satisfying, I left, not having a clue what I was gonna do next. Um, and again, a part of that was um uh because I was married to someone and and who could support uh us for a, a short period of time till I figured out what I was gonna do. Um, but so I just I took six months to um get over being burned out and to figure out what I wanted to do and I was working with a life coach actually and instead of thinking again about jobs or even careers, what what I wound up doing is um, coming up with three characteristics or values or or um, attitudes that I wanted in any of my work and they were um, creativity, communication and community. And so I could apply those three things to things that came across my radar um, in a way that would help me see through the, the possibly limiting, um, you know, resume limiting um, obstacles to a certain job and go for it anyway. So what happened was um, I saw that this A small Quaker progressive school was looking for a director of admissions. Now, I had no experience or background (laughs) in um, admissions work at all. Um, I could go on and on about that, but but I it immediately lit up my brain because it combined all those three aspects that I was looking for. It was collaborative, it was creative, and it was community. And so, um, based on that. I went for it and I got the job and I had a glorious four years working there. Um, And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I just had this very narrow concept of what I was qualified to do or what I could do to make money. Um, You know, again, that's, that's my privilege that I have never really done anything just for the sake of the money um, because I've been lucky enough not to have to worry about that. Um, and it's not because I'm an heiress, it's because I've been lucky to work in a, you know, field or fields that have, um, remunerated me, you know, adequately. Um, so yeah, so I, I just, I get frustrated with young people, um, who do have, you know, the luxury of choice, um, when they, Mm -hmm. when they, um,
0: I, I'm. I really appreciate the fact you brought up the caveat of the luxury of choice because I think it took me a long time to realize that because even when I went back and I looked at unmistakable and I've talked about this on the show before where I think it was Jonathan Fields was interviewing me and he started asking about parental expectations in an Indian culture and. Uh, You know, I mean, if we're honest, I mean, unmistakable was really a sort of, you know, challenge to the status quo and all of the advice that i had been given. And then I realized my parents were giving me the advice they gave me based on the context that they grew up in. So their advice was completely logical. It made sense. Right. You know, if your outcomes are either, you know, if your outcomes are binary, where it's either poverty or security, then you're going to advise your kids to act accordingly.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. um, I want to come
0: back to the, the parenting thing, but um, so sure. one thing that is interesting uh, to me about you is that you were creative in an you know and started a creative life in an era that predates technology and um, and you know we talked about I this sure in did. yeah i mean in a lot of ways in in a lot of ways the technology that we use today to express our creativity um and we talked about this in audience one and we said that the paradox of all of this is the very thing that facilitates so much of it also inhibits it and as somebody who you know was a writer and and somebody who worked with writers in an era that predates this what have you seen change for the worse um i mean i have my own opinions about this obviously Uh, but I mean, I think in a lot of ways, that's the whole idea behind audience of one in a lot of ways was, you know, it's not about sort of, Oh, how many followers can I have on Twitter? But I'm just curious from your perspective, not just from having worked on audience one with me, but what you see now.
1: So your question is what I think has changed for the worse in terms of, um, being a creative and technology happening. Well, I
0: guess in terms of the way, in in terms of the way that creative people think about, you know, building careers and what it takes to be successful more than anything else.
1: Hmm. Um, you know, it's hard for, well, hmm. when, you know, I, I feel like I would answer that differently depending on what hat I was wearing. If I was wearing the hat that I have worn as a book packager, producer, collaborator, ghostwriter, um, I would say it's only helped and that uh, it's important for uh, an author or whoever to have a platform and to have a lot of followers and to engage and all that kind of stuff. Um, But that was me coming at it uh, almost from a business perspective, not a creative perspective. I mean, do I think that that helps creativity? No, uh, of course not. Um, if I have my just plain old poet's hat on, um, I don't think it's, it, I don't think it's, I mean, it hasn't really changed my creative output or life, um, except in a positive way. But this is, I, and I'm talking about very simple uh, examples of technology, uh, such as I remember... In my twenties and thirties, the way I would track my submissions of poems to literary journals was literally on little index cards that I kept in a little metal case, and then I had to print out and mail um, poems, in, you know, at the post office, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now uh, there's an app, you know, that that tracks everything I've submitted, all the different journals I've submitted to. So if I can't remember. Um if i sent a poem to x y or z journal i could, i just check on this um this app and and so that has streamlined everything oh and of course i can submit everything electronically um so that's a huge plus that's a that's a big advantage for a writer um i mean i remember i also remember printing out um books that were like six pounds of paper to send to the publisher. And now we just email a PDF. You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, that, that, it's all time saving. But if you're talking about, you know, on the level or the, the uh, arena of social media and TikToks and all that kind of stuff, I'm just not that engaged in it. So I'm not really yeah. probably uh, a good person to ask because I just, I don't care a lot about it and I don't really need to care a lot about it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm 70 years old and uh, I'm (laughs) not going to try to make my little book of poetry a bestseller. I just, I would just be pleased if more than my brothers and sisters read it, you know, seriously. And, and I'm happy to say that, um, you know, it, it's definitely going to go to more than my brothers sisters based on the pre-orders, but, um, but I don't have, you know, I don't have that ambition to have a million followers so that I can then sell a million copies of my poetry book. I I'd rather have a hundred readers really get something meaningful out of it than a million people who buy it and don't even read it, you know? Mm-hmm. that's kind yeah. of my my value
0: system yeah you know it's it's funny we had a guy named will store here you know, who read a book called selfie you know how we become self-obsessed and what it's doing to us and i think one of the consequences of building such a self-obsessed society is to your point people don't do that for their own fulfillment anymore it's all about some sort of external outcome yeah and there's this emphasis on metrics over mastery
1: right
0: and funny enough i remember when audience of one came out, my sister called me. She said, how's it doing? And I said, eh, it's not selling as many copies as we hoped. She was like, you're an idiot. That's the entire message of the book. She was like, you don't even <laughs> believe what you wrote. That's why nobody's buying it. And that was, that was a really hard lesson for me to go through, particularly after writing a book about it because. Right at the end of the day, like, you know, Penguin is still a business, you know, they're yeah. not immune to the laws yeah. of capitalism. Yeah. yeah, And I, you know, I jokingly said, yeah, we call it an audience of one. I'm sure Penguin would be a lot happier if it was reaching an audience an of audience millions, of but
1: million, right? I love uh, your sister but, though, by the way, <laughs> yeah, she brilliant. she's brilliant. I mean, it,
0: yeah, you know, she, but, but the, it took me a long time to just say, you know what? All right, that's it. I have to embrace the ideas in this book and be okay with the fact that maybe this is, what it's going to be. And I, I remember even Ryan holiday telling me "Obstacle is the way didn't sell, you know, as many copies that it did until three years after it came out. And then apparently the artist's way, it was years after publication that it ended up becoming this sort of cult classic. Yep. Um, yep. And so I just kind of thought to myself, all right, well, I have a job to do. And that is to do my work. Speaking of which uh, I wanted to talk to you about your whole process of working with people, mainly because I seem to have inherited, you know, some of Robin's no bullshit uh, way of giving feedback, which I've realized is not the easiest thing in the world for people to take. Like, I I've had people who literally I'm like, I, at this point, I have to pay basically tell people I was like, look, if I work with you, there's a chance I'm going to make you cry. And the truth is I don't give a shit if I make you cry because I only have one job and that's to make you write something worth reading. And if you're not okay with that, then we shouldn't work together. And I basically realized I'm a terrible coach for writers. Like I can (laughs) show somebody like how I can guide them on the process. And I'm like, I will tell you if it sucks and you're not going to like that. Like, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I will tell you what you need to hear. And you're particularly good at doing that um, in a way that, you know, really made me kind of a much better writer. I mean, my books were a, a thousand times better than they ever would have been if I hadn't worked with you on them. And there are numerous things. I remember a couple in particular. Um, one was throughout the process of writing Unmistakable, there's one comment that you made over and over and over. Do you remember what it was?
1: Not quite right.
0: How do you, how does this relate to the concept of unmistakable to the oh, point where okay. I was like, I'm really beginning to hate this word. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, okay. um, that was one. But yeah. then the other thing that I, I noticed even when you did give feedback, I think I remember the closest thing to a compliment was good. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, cool. But I intentionally chose you because I remember when I met you in Lisa's office, you said, I'm going to be tough on you. And I told Lisa, she's the one. Mm-hmm. And. I, to this day, I remember it told, it took me one month before I stopped taking your feedback personally. You might remember we had a call where you sent me an editorial memo for a very well-known author. And you're like, this is the feedback I gave to this author. And I'm yeah. like, all right, cool. Yeah. And it took me a long time to separate the fact that, you know, you were giving me feedback on the work from feedback on me. And yeah. Oh, the other favorite comment was lazy. Try again. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I realized like when you did that, you didn't you know, you never just gave me the feedback on how to fix it. You made me think, think for myself. Yeah. And I wonder,
1: writing is, you know, writing is a a way of thinking, but getting the thinking down on the page. Um, and so that, you know, that's always what I meant by that. If it was lazy, it's because it hadn't been thought through, uh, well enough but I hope I never made you cry.
0: <laughs> you never made me cry. I mean, like I was thick skinned enough that I was just like, all right, whatever. Granted, I'm probably far like, I, I thought you were tough. Apparently I'm ruthless. If you're tough, I'm an asshole. <laughs> like you know, I I, I, as it is, I,
1: it, it, well, it, it, I have
0: no ability to filter. So right. you know, that's yeah,
1: sometimes I, I fear that, um, you know, in my poetry workshops uh, where we're supposed to give constructive criticism, I think I do come on too strong sometimes with these very fragile poets. Um I mean, poets are the most fragile of all writers. And um I have to really, really try to hold myself back. Um, even though I want it myself, I want that tough feedback on my work. But um, but I've come to in my old age, I've, you know, acquired this wisdom that not everyone wants that. So um, like I'll I'll actually ask. In the workshop, would you like my edits? You know, I, I don't just send them to someone. Yeah. So, um, you know, and some people welcome them, and some people absolutely don't want to see a single word edited. So, I, I hope clearly, I, I
0: didn't learn everything from you because I'm just like, this is shit. You should try again. <laughs> <laughs> like that's you know. Well, no, um, it's,
1: it's um, you know, there's it, it comes back to context again. Um, mm-hmm, if you're yeah. working on a book together it has to be you know up to snuff if it's a poem that someone's going to just stick in a drawer it's not as um the stakes aren't as high yeah
0: mm-hmm. i mean and i i thought to myself like maybe you get one or two chances to do this in a lifetime so you want to do it right and do it yeah. well yeah um, exactly. and so i was like all right you know what and i remember at a certain point i was like all right this isn't like you're doing the job i hired you to do which is to help me write the best book i could possibly write right um yeah. And that's one thing I've noticed with a lot of creatives. I mean, you know, like poets are the most fragile. I mean, I think all creatives are fragile to a degree, I mean, no matter how much we say, you know, we're thick skinned Like to this day, I can tell you, I can quote you the one, the only review from any of my books. I can quote you is from the woman who wrote me a two star review. who said, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. And then I remember even when I met you remember it was between you and two other coaches two two people who did what you did one guy hated the book and i was like clearly this guy won't work and the other guy was ryan's writing coach uh, ryan holiday's writing coach neils and i was like yeah i don't want my books to sound like his i love ryan but yeah. um and mm-hmm. i love his books but i wanted a book that sounded different
1: yeah um, yeah huh. well i i think it worked out
0: yeah. Why? No complaints. Um, well, let's, let's talk about your book. Cause there's a lot of things in this book that I learned about you that I actually never learned I bet. in all the time that we uh, worked together in two and a half years.
1: Well, it's a uh, very know, personal I, book and I, you know, as yeah, a professional, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, there wouldn't be any point in revealing any of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew that you had kids cause we talked about your daughter who was also yeah. a novelist, Um, yes. but I didn't know it was about the marriages. And I always wondered about that. I was like, you know, what is Robin's romantic past? Uh And one of the things that you actually say uh in the book, let me pull this up here, this quote, uh, this really struck me. Now both marriages and that iconic building have burned into history, but new architecture soars and love still bears witness with new lives, alive, alive. And. So uh, what age did you actually end up getting divorced? And, you know, at what point do you realize, okay, that's kind of it. Like I'm done with this. Like, and is um, there, you know, what, what happens to it? Like, is there a prospective romantic future now, or is that just off the table?
1: Uh, well, that's a really personal question, Srini.
0: <laughs> I can take this out, Robin, if you want. I'm, totally. If you want me to edit it no, I'm happy I'm to. I'm
1: teasing really- you. I'm teasing All you. Right. I'm teasing you. Um, I'm glad you quoted that particular poem, though, because um, it, you know, it clearly, it wasn't, it was a poem written way after the split, but um, looking back at the very beginning of the marriage, um, that that was quite joyful. And um, it was, I put it first in that section about the marriage because I thought it summed up the cycle and, it, you know, similarly to how I processed finding out about my biological father, writing all these poems about my marriage, both before, during and after, um, helped me process the divorce. And um, that first poem in that section is where I kind of uh, am now with it, I'd say. So we were married 30 years. And um I thought we had a great marriage and then one day kind of out of the blue um he said he wanted a break and long story short it, it, that was his euphemism for really he's out of there. So it was a huge shock. It was um it was like a hand grenade had been thrown into my life really. Um because I just never saw it coming and it took me a long time um to get over it. Uh you know for a long time I thought and all our friends thought oh, well, he's just going through a midlife crisis and he'll come back. Um, But finally, I realized that wasn't going to happen. So it's been 10 years, actually, uh, which I can't believe. Um, And so I've done the whole online dating thing, which has been excruciating, and (laughs) I I hate it. Uh, I've probably had 150 first dates um, and maybe... 20 second dates and maybe 10 third dates. And, um, it's just hard, you know, cause especially for someone my generation, it, at first I still thought it was a big stigma to do online stuff. And then I realized, oh, it really isn't. Even people in their twenties are doing it. Like they aren't yeah. desperate, you know, so it's just the way of the world. So I did get used to that, but, um, and I didn't start doing it for a while. Um, I then I've had a few heartbreaks. I um, reconnected with my the very boyfriend I left New York um, because of to move to Berkeley when I was twenty. Um, he, his wife had died. We had been in touch off and on during the years, so we reconnected, and I it was like it was like no time had passed, and I was totally crazy about him all over again. And then COVID hit. And somehow, in the middle of a pandemic, he managed to meet another woman and fall in love with her. So that was heartbreaking um, because I really thought this was going to be it, you know. Um, And then last um, last August September, I went on. I, I had done all the things people say you should do, like pursue your own interests, you know, at which I have. I go to poetry readings, I hike, I go dancing um, all things I love to do and I would do it no matter what. So I went on a hiking trip, um, last summer, uh, to Glacier National Park. And it was a group of people, about six married couples, about six single women and one guy, single guy. (laughs) And we hit it off and I really liked him. And we had a lot of, um, fun and repartee and blah, blah, blah. And he lived out of state from me, but um, when we got back, I emailed him and just said, "We have some great hikes up here in the Hudson Valley. If you want," he said, "Great." So, long story short, we started seeing each other a little bit long distance, and we had a great time. And I really thought, again, well, this is this is a keeper, you know. I mean, I never want to get married again, uh, and I told him that. But um, but after a while, uh, he just said. I want to date other women and I don't think I want to see you anymore. So that was another heartbreak and that was fairly recently. Um, Uh So I kind of feel like at this point, I don't, I I'm just kind of letting things unfold. I I'm not doing the online thing and I'm just, I'm actually going on another hiking trip to Alaska, hiking and kayaking, but I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm expecting to meet anyone. Um, I, I, if it happens again, that would be great. I miss having a um, sort of a witness, you know, to my life and witnessing someone else's life. The kind of person yeah. you can tell the little things that happen in a day or the funny thing you saw, that kind of thing. I miss that a lot. Um, and I loved having it again, brief as it was. But my life is very rich and full as it is. I mean, clearly, I I still dance and I still hike and I'm writing and I I'm still working full time. And, um, and I have good friends and I have um, grandchildren now who I adore. So mm-hmm. it, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. If it does, that would be great. But I have had a lot of love in my life and I feel blessed um, to be able to say that. Hmm.
0: 30 years is a really long time. And to have that come out of nowhere, uh, you know, to have something that has been such a sort of stable, consistent, you know, predictable force in your life for 30 years and then to have it, you know, be pulled out from under you. Uh, how do you, you know, find a sense of solid ground?
1: It was hard. like Like I said, it was really hard. I went, I had a really rough couple of years there. Um, it was literally like a hand grenade. Um, especially the unexpectedness, um, how I did it. Uh, I, I'm pretty resilient. I think just as, you know, my temperament is resilient. And, um, so one thing I did the first couple of years is every time I got really angry, thinking about something about him, I had a party. I threw a party. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I really did. So I had more parties in those first two years than I've ever had before. I had an all women un Valentine's party. I had game nights. I had mother daughter parties. I had dance parties. I had, I gave birthday parties to every single one of my friends. I, um, you know, so I just, I, that helped <laughs> like get mad have a party. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> I, I leaned a lot on my sisters and my friends, my, my three sisters are my best friends. And I, um, for example, I went on a backpacking trip with one of them right after it happened. Um, and it was very therapeutic, uh, to get out into the mountains and just have that perspective, um, that, yeah, my 30 year marriage is over, but, um, you know, I'm a speck on this mountain that kind of thing. Um, and I, and they were people, you know, friends and my sisters, they were, they were people I could call and vent to or cry with, or, or they could make me laugh, that kind of thing. So, um, and then, um, oh, and I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of poetry during that, those first horrible years. Um, so I guess that's how I did it. Um, and, and, um, I have, I, I'd say physical stuff really helped. Um, you know, as I said, just walking my dog or or going down to the river. Uh, I, I live on the Hudson River and um, the river's always been almost a spiritual uh, place for me where I find a lot of solace um, and comfort. So I did that. Um, I don't think I started dancing yet. I think that was a couple of years later. Uh, oh, and the other thing I did that I'm so happy I did, and I just kind of stumbled into it is I started, my kids had left home by then. I had this four bedroom house. Um, I needed money. And so I started renting rooms on Airbnb, which I had just had uh, discovered. I was a very early, early adopter. My my daughter and I had stayed in an Airbnb when she was looking at grad schools and it had just started. So I thought, okay, this could be cool, and I was really lucky because my very first guest was um, a young uh, violin student. She was getting a, a master's in violin at a nearby college, and she was so lovely. Uh, she became like another daughter. She really didn't. She wound up staying with me for I think almost a year. Um, wow. And and since then, I've just had a. I had another woman who wound up living with me for four years. And I just had lunch with her. She only moved out because she, her boyfriend who lived in Soho was begging her to move in with him. And I finally almost kicked her out. I said, Amy, it's time to, you know, fly out of the nest here. (laughs) Go live with him. And so she did. Um, But again, you know, she she came to my daughter's wedding, you know. So um, that was That was great because I realized, especially having grown up with five brothers and sisters um, and then having had a family, I I like living with people, you know, I really do. Right now I have a a young woman who's studying to be a midwife living with me. In fact, she just had to run out to deliver a baby. Um, And so that's been that's been really great.
0: Well, I think that uh, that makes a perfect place to go into the final topic I want to talk to. You've alluded to your daughter multiple times throughout our conversation. And I wonder, having lived this kind of a life that has gone anything but according to plan, you know, meandering, um, but allowed you to live the kind of life you want to live. How did that influence the way that you raised your children and the advice that you gave them about making their way in the world?
1: Well, as I said before, I I tried to instill in them um, that values were more important than money, that, you know, following your, your creative passions, um, was really important. I, I tried giving them a lot of freedom to experiment and explore. It backfired with my son. He was very conventional in some ways and, and very interested in making a lot of money. Um, and very kind of, mm, he was just very, Uh, uptight, I guess is the right word. My daughter um, wound up, for example, unschooling, homeschooling for two years. And that is a direct result of um, her being exposed to the whole concept through a series of books I was working on with um, a family whose two daughters were uh, homeschooled. And she just got uh, really fascinated by that, so she came to us with a proposal for doing it, and um, because of my value system and and um, and my exes too, we said go for it, and we encouraged her, and it was great. She she came up with her own curriculum, um, and she and we were and because my job, I was working with Seth then or no, I had LARC by then, um, was flexible, you know, and I, I worked right nearby. And so I was able to support her and she would do things like, um, well, she worked on a lot of our books actually for her English (laughs) lessons. Um, she contributed to them starting at like 11 and 12 because she was always a gifted writer. And, um, You know, and she, for science, I would have her read the science section of the New York Times once a week and then write a summary of one of the articles. So I learned a lot of science during those years. And then she would go to museums and libraries. She was the assistant to a friend of mine teaching an art class. Um, she just, she just was able to be incredibly self motivated. And so she learned a tremendous uh, amount, um, and didn't get into the yucky middle school, mean girls um, world. And then she decided she did want to go to high school. So we looked at a whole lot of high schools and she wound up picking one, not the one her brother went to, which was extremely academic and success um, uh, heavy and uh, intense and put a lot of pressure on the kids, not the opposite of a holistic education. She picked a school that was um, the opposite and she thrived there and she wound up editing the literary magazine and then she wound up, she didn't want to take any time off, but she did travel a lot, um, even when she was younger. I I remember putting her on a plane to go to Jamaica to help work at an f- orphanage and putting her on a plane to go to Alaska to, to um, see a friend who she had met on the editorial board of the book she had worked on with us. And um, And then she went to... Somewhere else on her own. But anyway, um, she wound up going to Brown because they liked people who were very self-motivated, and she was. So she was able to major in creative writing. She didn't even have to major in English. And she wound up publishing three successful books in the last few years. So um, you know, I I mean, look. Do I think if she had different parents, she wouldn't have become a successful novelist? No. Um, I think she was wired and born to do that. But do I feel good about being a parent who could encourage her and, and um, affirm what she wanted to do? Absolutely. And, you know, and I would like to think we could take a teeny bit of credit for um, having the kind of environment that exposed her to many different things. And, um, you know, and she saw us reading and writing all the time too, of course. So, but mainly I think it was that we gave her so much freedom to pursue what she wanted to pursue. We never said, oh, you'll never make a living as a writer. You have to go be a, you know, advertising accountant or something. Um, so, yeah. Would it be okay if I read one of the poems from the book? Oh, yes, please go for it. Okay. Do, you, do you have a preference um, of which section?
0: Nope. Whatever you want to share.
1: Okay. Um, let's see. Well, okay. This one, it's the last one in the book and it kind of comes, it, it makes it come full circle. So it's called Family Dinner, 1976. Everyone is still alive talking about death. My not father says the first thing we should see every morning is a skull. My mother announces to the table that Robin's always been afraid of dying by 24. My father asks my age now, 24, it feels like a plague. He reminds me to guard against eagles that prey on babies, his black way of teaching me to be fearless. I can hear how I listen to him. My laugh the same for 40 years in this fearless afterlife. Grant telling me he is my true father.
0: Amazing. Well, this has been really, really interesting. Uh, As I said, you know, I have had a chance to get to know a part of you and a part of your life that I just had no idea about, despite having worked with you for two years. So I'm really curious to see how you're going to answer this question, given that you played a pivotal role in The Unmistakable book.
1: And you know, you you'd think, think I would have thought about it and no. Yeah, well, was that's why I'm glad you me. didn't.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't because then I you could have rehearsed it, which would defeat the purpose. I completely
1: um, forgot about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I, I, what I think makes someone or something unmistakable is their real. Their spiritual nature coming through loud and clear. And you can think of spiritual in that sense as, you know, not necessarily God, um, but the, the still, quiet, but, but strong, deep voice inside us when we, when we stop thinking and doing that is always there, um, Wakers call it the light within. Um, It could be nature. It could be a group of people who you love, um, whatever you want to call it. But for me, when it's unmistakable, there's that sense of authority and authenticity that I think can only come from that place of uh, spiritual life.
0: Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time to join us, to share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure to actually get to talk to you in this context. Uh, Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the, uh, the book, and everything that you're up to?
1: Oh, no, that's a good question. I don't have, like I said before, I'm not big on social media and websites and stuff. I don't have my own website, all I can say is to order the book, which I would love people to do. It's called Double Helix. Um, it's not on Amazon yet. It will be after May 27th. But for now, you can go to Finishing Line Press. It's just finishinglinepress.com. Plug in my name, Robin Delabo, and my page there will come up with um, some articles about me and the uh, pre-order uh, link. Um, Oh, I do have a I do have a very tiny Instagram account um that is that I do post poems on sometimes. I think it's just at Rdelabo. Yeah, Rdelabo on Instagram.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.